Welcome to the Joan and Carrie Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, friends. Today's guest is a good one. It is Alex Wolf. Alex is a longtime writer for Sports Illustrated. He's the author of a really cool book called The Audacity of Hoop, uh, which came out last year, 2016, and it is about uh, former President Barack Obama and his love of basketball and kind of how out all that blends together. Beautiful book, too. Really, really cool photos. Uh, grabbed some from Pete Souza, who's, of course, the great White House photographer who now has his own book out and uh, beautifully illustrated, uh, thoughtful and interesting book and shed some light. So if you're into politics or discussions of the 44th president uh, or basketball or any of that stuff put together, then uh, you will definitely take this book. Really, really neat. Um, Alex has written so many cool stories for Sports Illustrated over the years, primarily on basketball, but uh, has written about college athletics in general and corruption and He's an interesting guy, influential writer for me, one of the SI crew there. I've talked about Michael Farber before, my appreciation for him, William Knack, Gary Smith, uh, Steve Russian, the list goes on and on. And uh, we got into the kind of the glory years of SI and the changes in college basketball and uh, lots of good stuff. And I recorded it with him a while ago uh, in on his uh, farm property, property, I guess you could say in Vermont. And, uh, it was a cool chat and, uh, we got to, it was not time sensitive per se, so we kind of got to hold it for a while. Uh, but a good time to do so now with college basketball in full swing. So yeah, I hope you enjoy today's episode of the Jonah Carey podcast with Alex Wolf. about the idea of timelines, and, and you mentioned that you were working on anthologies, basketball anthologies. So before we get into Free Darko and Simmons and Zachlow and everything else, why don't we start by talking about, I don't know what the origins of basketball writing are. I mean, I could, you know, there's Ring Lardner and Red Smith and stuff when it comes to baseball. Who are the, who are the giants of basketball writing? Were there any before, like, the 60s? Yeah, and the, because the giants of sports writing had no time or use for basketball. Right. Red Smith famously hated it. Hmm. He uh, he called it first of all. No, at that time, basketball was truth be told, college basketball was a collection of these little regional cults, yeah. and pro basketball was kind of bush league, Fort Wayne. Yeah, slight on Fort Wayne, but right. and so you needed somebody with prominence to take an interest in it and maybe set aside the horse racing and boxing and golf right. a little bit. So that didn't really happen until the 60s. I mean, you had Bill Bradley, interestingly enough, he, he helped to begin two major nonfiction careers. One was Frank DeFords. Mm -hmm. He shows up at SI from Princeton, and as, as Frank himself put it, I had Bill Bradley in my hip pocket. <laughs> and 
Did they go where they at this exact same time? Were they contemporary? They, they overlap. Frank was a senior when he was a, when Bradley was a freshman. Okay. And then, of course, the most famous is John McPhee does this New Yorker profile of Bradley, and mm-hmm. it leads to a book which becomes the first of thirty books he'll do for Farrar Strauss, and more importantly. He becomes a New Yorker staff writer shortly after that and never leaves. So um, you have those two people kind of taking basketball with them forward. And then I think basketball was kind of because of race and all sorts of other things. It was a perfect sport for the 60s and 70s. But it's pretty slim pickings. You know, you have Red Smith wrote this one column that we found for the anthology where he covered an NIT game involving Rhode Island. How long ago? This would have been in 47. And Rhode Island has this great fast break team that's also... Led by Lamar Odom. No, that was later. <laughs> it was the former Lamar Odom was a guy named... Catino Moe. And Catino was a guy named Ernie Calvary. Okay. Calvary Lee. Uh, and they, you know, they scored 80 points a game and their coach was uh, the same chemistry professor at the university who invented in the lab this light blue color that they wear to this day. Cool. And Red Smith kind of fell hard for the fast break and, and March Madness, basically. Oh. So kind of in spite of his predisposition against the sport, you can, you can read this piece and see that even Red Smith was beginning to fall for basketball come tournament time. Well, and I, so, I mean, if you think about it, then that implies, well, unfortunately, uh, Frank's just left us, but that implies that the legends of the sport are still with him. I mean, Bob Ryan would qualify as maybe one of the godfathers, and I can remember... Gee, I remember Bob Ryan reviewed a, a book that I worked on with Nate Silver and all the Baseball Perspectives guys called Baseball Between the Numbers. And in his review, he said, oh, I like this. Numbers, it's good. you know." And, he, and he's at heart, loves baseball. He's been a Fenway season ticket holder and all that. And he said, I wonder what it would be like to go with one of these fellows to a baseball game, though. Would they just quote equations at me all the time? It didn't work, but we exchanged emails. I said, yeah, yeah, let's go. I'll go to I was living in New Hampshire at the time, and I wanted to. But that's interesting to me that the thought of Ring Lardner or Red Smith walking among us is, to me, bonkers. Like, that's prehistoric almost. But if Bob's around, and, and it really would be those guys would be the ones from the big sports sections. And then, I guess, whoever would write cover basketball for SI in the 60s, which I'm trying to think who that would be at that point. Well, on the college side, I would argue that Kirk. Oh, right, yeah. He was a big tastemaker. Yeah. You know, he had, even to the way he dressed when he showed up on Press Row, he was Tom Wolf. Yeah. And his style. And, all. and, and then DeFord, um, I guess by by the early 70s, he left the beat and was doing the long takeouts. But yeah. uh, there were plenty of others who, who stepped up for SI on the NBA beat, and John Papanek and... You know, more recently, I think Lee Jenkins, what he does oh, for SI is... Um, the finals ends, and ten seconds later, he's got the one thing that you would have never known about in a million years. And He's just a great... Rep- I'm talking a great writer. He's just a reporter. reporter. And yeah. he, he, he really reports the hell out of everything he writes. And just has this way of distilling it. And he's figured out what... You know, obviously the marketers uh, in Olympic Tower in Manhattan figured out a long time ago, but that basically there's six or seven personalities that are the game today yeah. at any one time. And if you can wire that person and an orbital or two around that person, then you're so far ahead of the game. And, I mean, just within 24 hours after the Warriors won, there, there was Lee talking about this text that Draymond sent Durant and all of the steps that how long do you think he sat on that? Because he must, it's not like he found it out that day. So that means he had to keep it a secret, maybe tell your 
partner or your dog. And that's, you have to sit. I'm just such a, <gasps> I don't know, maybe I tweeted, maybe I was this, maybe I was that. I just wouldn't be able to sit on it. Well, maybe it's because Lee is, is still a weekly magazine journalist. You know? Yeah. There isn't that pressure on him. Yeah. As much as SI.com would love to have, you know, whatever's in his notebook. Right. But we've, we've all had to kind of do the civil act and since we started the web in earnest, yeah. okay, what do you save for something that has to take a kind of longer view and what do you want to disgorge on the web right away? And I think Lee's somebody who has that license in the same way that a guy like Verducci on baseball has that license. Yes. Yeah. Although, yeah, Verducci's notably not on social media because he's smart. Uh, which is, which is, I would very much like to lead to anyway. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's right. And, and Verducci has a way, and he'll, you know, can incorporate stories onto TV as well, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I have so many different platforms. But actually, just talking to you, John, I, yeah. I'm start, starting to clarify for me how recent the history of basketball writing really is. Um, you know, Herbert Warren Wind, great golf writer for The New Yorker. Yeah. He had about a six or seven year run with SI back in the fifties where he did some great writing about Bob Cousy. Oh. And it turns out that Wind actually played basketball at Yale. I mean, Herbert Warren Wind was a, was a college, wow. a D1 college basketball. Wow. Um, so he, he did appreciate the game and yeah. somehow got a little light and actually did pieces for both SI and the New Yorker on Cousy and the Celtics. Right. So, but he, even he, even though he has a background in the game, he writes about it kind of anthropologically. Right. Back in the 50s, it's, it's like this odd thing that he feels he has to take the reader by the hand and explain to. And well, it wasn't mainstream. It Certainly not for NBA, at least. It wasn't. Yeah. And, and he comments, actually, in his writing he does, about how disarming it is to have all this time with these guys. And in fact, when DeFord started on the beat, yeah. um, he had a timing expense account, and all these NBA players wanted to go out to dinner with him. They were being paid anymore. Right. So he'd be on these airplane flights, and he's in first class. So Russell's like, yes, yes, take me. And Havlicek's in coach, you know, so. Oh, gee. It, it was a whole different era then. And obviously, you know, Lee Jenkins goes through three yes. or four layers to get to the person who would stay I'm already friendly with Mav. I'm working on it. I'm, I'm going to get LeBron on the podcast. <laughs> Mav, I know you're listening, or one of your people is. For sure, this is happening. I'm doing it. Um, were you, well, I guess it'd be a two-parter then. Number one, did you always know you wanted to be a sports writer? Number two, did you imagine that basketball was going to be your thing? I remember that I always wanted to be a sports writer. Um, basketball's a pretty big part of my life from, from the 60s. I'm born in 57 and... You played up. as far as long as you could, basically? I did. I yeah. still play noon time when I can. Um, I'll come back tomorrow. Yeah, please do. I'm six you're four. On my, you're yeah. on my team. Man. I'm the world's tallest shooter. <laughs> uh, Danny Shade, sorry. Danny Shade. Yeah. And Bob Shade. Yeah. Um, no, I, I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey in the '60s, so basketball was kind of part of what yeah. you breathe then with Bradley. And um, my pediatrician apparently told my mother that it was the one sport that he could recommend that uh, young athletes play. Football. I don't know why baseball is scary, but okay. This is what he said, and I, being the eldest uh, and the only boy, I kind of listened to what my parents had yep. to say. So here's here are my parents channeling the pediatrician, and something you could play by yourself in the driveway. Yeah. Shoot. And so basketball came first, and then 
Um, I played through high school, and... If you grew up in Jersey, did you head to the city? Did you go to 4th Street? Did you go to Rocker? Did you do any of that stuff? No, I, we moved from Central Jersey when I was 12 to suburban Rochester. Okay, York, yeah. And it was there that I, I would play in high school. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit going, you know, to Cobbs Hill Park where the city and the suburbs yep. kind of met. A little bit of that. But, you know, I poked around the student journalism in high school. It was really only my sophomore year in college, so I go back to Princeton for college. My sophomore year, I take um, a course, a nonfiction writing course, and I get involved with this outfit called the University Press Club, which basically supplies stringers to New York papers, Philly papers, and everybody in between. So I'm doing a lot of journalism, student journalism, and still kind of soaking up the game. And um, yeah, and then just before my senior year, a buddy of mine and I come up with this idea of doing a book about playground ball around the country. And we throw sneakers and a ball in the back of a rental car and we kind of go find games, the two of us, and light it up. Oh, you know, like in a Plimpton way, in an immersive way. That's in an immersive cool. way. Yeah. But the product was more a, um, more kind of a Zagat survey. Okay. Courts were in play. That's cool. And the In Your Face basketball book. So that became kind of my calling card when I'm looking for work after college. And yeah. So basketball and journalism was kind of in in the cards early. Well, and if you're in college, if I'm doing math, if you're born in 57, that means breaks of the game comes out right as you're coming of age. And I have to feel like if I was that age, I'd be like, oh, this is a thing? I could do this? Wow. That's right. I mean, so, that might be the best sports book of all time. It's way up there. Yeah, it's um, the excerpt of when you were in college. Again, it's, yeah. So... That season that Halberstam chose to follow the Blazers is Magic and Larry's rookie year. Yeah. They don't really figure in the book because it takes a few years for the retrospection to make clear how much they're going to change things. But, um, yeah, no, that was a huge part. The other book that came out while I was in college that came to find a lot of other people glommed onto was Rick Tellender's Heaven is a Blazer. He was a, yeah, big time, yeah. So, um, so that would be the late, 70s. So really the flowering of books about basketball. There's this famous George Plimpton comment. You've probably seen it. The quality of the writing is inversely proportional to the size of the ball. Right. Lots of great, great books about golf and very, very few about basketball. But whenever he said that, I've got to go find out exactly when he said it. But boy, there have been some good ones. Pat, yeah. Pat yeah, yeah, my, my, uh, what is it, my season, my one season, my, uh. My losing season. My losing season, yeah. My, da- my dad is a Conroy guy. He said, go read all these five, these five books. I said, okay, they're great. Really yeah. Um, well, and, and, and then we are able to jump to, I want to jump back to you in a second, but let's keep going on this strain of, of how this is going. So, that 70s. By the time we get to 80s, so now Bird and Magic have taken over, and then that's that's the proliferation of... I mean, the college ball is also growing at that point, but then I would imagine NBA writing just explodes at that point. So, well, actually, let's jump back to your thing for a second then. Are you specifically drawn to one more than the other at that point? Are you thinking, well, Magic and Bird, I'm seduced by this, I'm going to stay on the college front? Is it just basketball in general? Obviously, your work took you in a specific direction, but was there a thought, was there any fork in the road that said, oh, I need to go here as opposed to here? It's really where the opportunities were. Right. Um, what what happened at SI in the seventies and eighties? So the economy's going great guns. The magazine is too still riding the coattails of TV and yep. people's interest. And what happens from roughly November through April is 
the magazine is doing, in addition to maybe a news lead in every issue about college basketball, there's a roundup, regional roundup for regions. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, a shorter feature. So there's a huge copy need for a very concentrated season. Yeah. So as a cub reporter, somebody who's hired essentially to be a fact checker, yeah. the chance to break in and actually do some writing is there with the colleges in a way there wasn't as much on the NBA. Team. That was sort of the next step on the ladder and you couldn't jump into that right away? Well, it wasn't that it was the next step on the ladder. It was plenty prestigious to yeah. the college basketball. Yeah. It was just that there were more opportunities. So okay. if they had a body, they could throw. I had a chance to get some bylines and show what I could Give me do. a thousand on Moncrief or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or go out to Briarcliff College in Iowa and tell us about this NAIA. Oh, yeah, yeah. Panama. That was cool. my first story. That's awesome. And so John Papanek and Bruce Newman are on the NBA beat mm-hmm. and have that pretty well covered. But the colleges provide this opportunity. And then the thing about the colleges is you have these tentpole programs with coaches that tend to stay there, like Izzo. Krzyzewski yeah. and Dean Smith and Calhoun and so forth. So you can pretty quickly start to make the connections that will pay off over time, right. even as the players are cycling through. Um, so I did more college than pro. I was on the pro beat for one year, the year that Kareem was MVP at age 40, whatever it was. Wow. Five. Um, but there would always be pro stories, and it seemed that the two would bleed into one another. Well, that's when they grow up, that's what they go on to do. Exactly. And of course, if you have these great contacts with Sidney Moncrief or whoever, then okay, you went from Arkansas to the Bucks, and now we can talk, and that's that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, that Charles Barkley, I did a piece on him. Oh, when sure. he was Sophomore at Auburn, and he pleaded with me that we we do dominoes instead of or Godfathers instead of dominoes because it was a step up in pizza quality. And then a few years later. Um, I'm talking to him as when he's a, a rookie with the Sixers, yeah. sort of asking, getting people to wonder why Bobby Jones is starting ahead of him. Um, a question. Well, Bobby Jones can play. <laughs> Barkley is great. Bobby Jones can play. I remember Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones can play. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So and then the international thing starts, and that becomes also. I've never been one to kind of put boxes around. Yeah. These I just see it kind of as a seamless garment of the game. Right. That's interesting. So. That, those strains, so when, I mean, we were talking, just before we jumped on, and then when we jumped on, we started talking about the kind of the outsider strains with Bill Simmons and the Free Darko guys. Was there an outsider strain pre-proliferation of internet? In other words, did somebody come in and blow people away at any point who didn't come from a traditional columnist background, or maybe was a traditional J school person, or maybe was a football writer, just took everybody by storm? I'm just trying to think if there were any kind of party crashers before, well, I guess before my generation of, of sports writers. You know, there were people who came at it, usually in books, with, with a little bit of a different... Well, there, were, there was a famous Leonard Coppett book, um, 24 Seconds to Shoot, which was kind of analytical. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of books. Nelson George did a book called Elevating the Game, which was kind of an African-American cultural approach. Interesting. Lewis Cole wrote a loose game. But these were all sort of somewhat sociological. So they weren't... I like Terry Pluto's ABA book. That was good too. Yeah, and then the oral history. And then yeah. he did another one called Tall Tales, which was the early NBA guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, those books were great. And, and we're, we're actually going to be including an excerpt from the book that Terry did with Bob Ryan. That's awesome. 
I'm trying to get, when I do this podcast, I'm always trying to get people to read stuff. So everything that you're hearing, go get all these books. They're all great. Yeah, or wait for the anthology. Oh, yeah, wait for the anthology. When's that out? It's going to be out at the end of February. Please. Yeah. Um, but we're, no, we're, we're really excited about the, the banquet table that, that we've laid out. But yeah. no, you raised a really good question. Okay, was, did it take the web to kind of democratize? Yeah. This, you know, and, and invite all these great new voices. And, you know, were those people out there back in the early 60s and the 50s? They shouldn't have they just didn't, well, they wouldn't have internet, Right, of course not. <laughs> and, but... I don't think so because all these things that have happened with basketball, the internationalization, mm-hmm. and, um, the empowerment of players so that they can you know, plot to, to all go to Miami, whatever it is they're going to yeah. do, Draymond can send yeah. send a text to Kevin Durant. Um, that's kind of of a piece with the idea that Free Darko could just be a message board for a bunch of Haverford College buddies. That's where my wife went, by the way. That's to tie it all together. You and she probably knows half of those. She knows Nathaniel. She knows I think she was maybe a senior when he was a freshman, or at least knows of him. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 great. That but that that would then blow up, and that there are now you know twelve respectable uh, outlets at least that have free Darko, you know, deep state uh, embeds in them yeah. today. And the artwork was so revolutionary too. I'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. Um, I mean, they really had the whole, whole platform thing going, the two books and the yes. posters they did. And, um, yeah, there's a guy who was teaching at Michigan, Santiago Colas is his name. Mm-hmm. He taught a, a course called Cultures of Basketball. He since moved on to Oberlin, but he uses, uh, the macrophone, no, the, uh, the history of the game, the, yeah. the, the, the history of basketball as his core text for this course. And uses the Free Darko Manifesto as sort of a lens with which to, that it's about the players and it's not about loyalty to a particular team. Right. That, that you just need to open yourself up to these personalities and their styles, which that attitude is revolutionary. You know, to, to behold the association, as the Free Darko guys like to call it, as, you know, a bunch of wonderful musicians, as opposed to, you know, this tribal way of thinking. And that's pretty really different. I mean, yeah. Not, and I think that helps account for how the NBA is vaulted back, I think, into a, a better place. And, it's not like San Antonio has 40 million people in that town or whatever, or, or Cleveland. It's that these people transcend the geography. And this is baseball's fundamental problem, by the way, is that it's the other way. Mike Trout is not LeBron. He should be. Mike Trout might be the best player since Willie Mays. We just don't get to hear about him. And are, are we willing to sit through eight other guys hitting? Before we get to see Mike Trout sort of step in the center, right. center stage, and I, if, if the NBA is indeed, and I believe it is, going through a kind of renaissance now, I wonder if it isn't that. Whereas there was a time where, if you were a great player, the most important thing to you would be that big contract, the most endorsements. It's all very self-centered, mm-hmm. and what we've seen now with the rise of these teams that have cultures that are feeling like the Spurs like the Warriors, even Cleveland to some extent, because I think LeBron and Kyrie have sure. a very positive impact of course. On, on the dynamic. Yeah, plus you get to play JR, which is much before. <laughs> <laughs> a nonstop entertainment, if nothing else. That's but, a book I'd like to write. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but the, 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 the primacy of being on a team that's functional and not yeah. dysfunctional, yeah. that's the thing that money can't buy. These guys are so awash in money that having a little bit more money doesn't mean nearly as much as having the thing that money 
by, which is, you know, going 73 and 9, or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And um, Duran is just the next chapter in that longing that these guys seem to have. You know, and maybe Chris Paul winds up playing for the Spurs for the same reason. You know? Yeah. You know, I, and I think that's one of the reasons the NBA is, is separating itself. And I think it's of a piece with the free Darko mentality. Hmm. I love that. Well, yeah, it's reshaping that way. By the way, the Sixers could be interesting if they're the next one to be to have a culture. If the process is a culture, Joel Embiid is a culture. That 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 interests me because it's okay. We've got these factions established, but it's going to change. It wasn't Golden State and Cleveland a few years ago. San Antonio has been this way for fifteen years. Maybe Pop will live forever. Although I want him to run for president in twenty twenty. But where will the next one come from? Will it be you know the Celtics are trying to put something together? Will it be the Sixers? Will it be something else? Or will it be that these guys, just a bunch of good guys, get together, but they don't have the culture? They have the talent, but they don't quite nail it. Yeah, and how much does a culture have to include a front office, a coach? Coach, for sure. Um, yeah, and I, as you, you mentioned, the Spurs, and the fact that they've sustained this, you know, and the title here. Robinson's gone. Duncan's gone. Yeah, but yeah. Then, they, then there's this other spike in the yeah. Spursograph, or whatever you'd call it, where they win that title. And there is some common thread in there besides Pop and R.C. Buford um, on the floor. And, and yeah, everybody wants to go there. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, Boston has shown some signs of establishing that culture. And in, in Philadelphia's Stevens case, is great, yeah. yeah, he is great. Yeah. And Philly is such a great basketball town mm-hmm. that I think they would, they would embrace it. The question is, it's also one of the, the most impatient <laughs> towns when it comes to fans. So you have that constant tension between building smart, and then what have you done for the I regret to say that I've become somewhat disillusioned with college basketball. It's not necessarily because one and done hurts me. First of all, I think the players, A, should be paid if they're going to be forced to go to college. B, shouldn't be forced to go to college at all, frankly. It's freedom of choice if you're a figure skater or a carpenter or anything else. Except a college basketball or football player, you don't have that choice. But fine. Uh... But it really does come down to that. That that is my objection. It's that it's the labor issue that I'm having a hard time with. And I watch, you know, I'll watch. It used to be that I would watch in November. I'm watching whatever Bucknell's on. Give me anything ESPN twenty. I don't care. And and I'm now I've been reduced to the proverbial person. I don't even. I'm not even in an office pool, but I pretty much wait until the tournament. That's it. Can you talk me out of this? Can you talk me back into college basketball? Because again, I think the talent is they're one and done. Fine, and by the way, there's still plenty of teams that will have upperclassmen who end up going deep into the tournament, including mid-majors, and that's all fine. But uh, it's the social element of it that I just cannot get behind. I'm not saying that the NBA is a bastion of awesomeness in every way, but just kids are fundamentally blocked from their rights, and I can't reconcile that as somebody who tries to be a socially conscious person, person in the world. Yeah, I, I start with a stylistic thing that's going on. It used to be college basketball. I think a lot of its appeal came from zones, it was a different... Yeah, here's the four corners team, here's the this team, yeah. Yeah, whereas now, from travel team all the way up to the NBA, it's a very integrated, very similar... College football the same way, by the way, Pop Warner all the way to college football, they're all playing spread offense, quarterback throws for 500 yards every time, so... Yeah, so if you're you're looking for something that's differentiated, it's a little harder. Then speaking to your your concern about the the rights, um, I think the other thing is, okay... I come at it sort of a little more of the Arnie Duncan school, okay. of, of, where I see the problem. And, and it stems from a similar place. There's this enormous amount of money flowing into this game 
All yeah. for the coaches. All of the coaches are the ADs or, in the case of football, you know, the defensive coordinator at Alabama. Yeah. Um, which, which is offensive, but the Arnie Duncan critique, which I subscribe to, is, look, they're, they're walking away with nothing. I mean, there's no effort to get them a degree. Yeah, even. no. Um, Neither and, party has any interest, it seems. Yeah, and if, if you're not going to get paid, you know, at least give them a shot to walk into the world with something when the yeah. odds are that they're not going to be able to play professional games. And that becomes more and more indefensible the more and more money is flowing into the, into yeah. the game. So I think it's a little like boxing. Um, those of us who cover it have to kind of look the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, Mayweather's a horrible person. You know, he's, he's the shining light and he's for one of them and it's just it's just hard. It's just, it's just you know, I, I'm not. I'm not the the, uh, the privileged white guy sitting here saying, "Oh, what with me, my sports have been besmirched. I should deserve better than this." Uh, but they have been besmirched. It's not. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with with people in the world. And how can you root for boxing? How can you root for this? And you know, the enjoyment of football goes away a little bit when there's head hunting and you know the CTE is going on. It's just for better or for worse. Because as a society, we know things. We have to really think hard about what we're rooting for, no matter what sport it is. In some ways, basketball, yes, there's the college thing, but in some ways, the NBA, I can root for LeBron or Chris Paul or Carmelo Anthony because they're unbelievably socially conscious, which we're going to segue to the book in a minute, but that's that's a good thing. That's going to suck me in even more, aside from the fact that LeBron's awesome. It's, oh, he seems to be a leader for change. Say whatever you want about Michael Jordan. One thing you cannot say is that he put his ass on the line. He didn't. Everybody buys shoes, and that was that has been taken out of context, I quote. But that's the bottom line. I like this. I like the fact that LeBron is a little bit in my face about it. Yeah, and it's it's one of a number of ways I think that pro basketball has distinguished itself pretty positively from from the pack of sports. Yeah. Um, and the other is just how little artifice there is to it. Um, we know that there's going to be a pool of money, and the players are going to get more than half of it. Yeah. And isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Yeah. I bet the owners are still going to make a great profit. Everybody makes Everybody money. Wins. Capitalism at yeah. its best. Good. Exactly. And I, I was actually, I, I kind of chuckled um, at the idea that Patrick Ruby floated uh, this. That um, Patrick is hard line. He is More hard, hard line, but I, I'm really intrigued by the uh, by trying to maybe get some of the historically black colleges to leave the NCAA mm. and create um, a kind of college but you get paid wow. sort of and, and what I love about that is in the NCAA model that historically black colleges are at the very bottom of the oh, yeah. totem pole and um, for black colleges to kind of flip the script uh, institutionally to you know to start you know, black athletes matter I mean it's almost like you could all call, call the movement something like that and it's very interesting I mean I I haven't done all my due diligence on what's being plotted, but yeah. there are a lot of really smart agents and lawyers and rabble rousers who are hitching their wagon to this movement mm. and where it leads. You know, everybody has a little self interest in it, but but where it could lead could be really interesting and and maybe really satisfying. Yeah. Your underwear drawer is probably terrible, and you know it. You know it. Everybody's is. That's how it goes. But Me Undies, you know what? They're going to fix it. They're going to fix this problem. You can go to MeUndies.com and find the best pair of underwear in the world's most comfortable pair of underwear 
you will ever own made from a sustainably sourced, naturally soft fabric that is three times softer than cotton. I actually want to know how they calibrated this. I have real questions. Uh, but having sampled the product, I have uh, several pairs of MeUndies in my drawer. They're great. They're really comfortable. They look good. They are soft. Uh, all that good stuff. And they're much better than the pretty crummy underwear that I had before. There's no question about that. And uh, even better, a 100% satisfaction guarantee if you use MeUndies. They guarantee you will love your undies or your money back. So here's what you do. Right now you go to MeUndies.com slash JKP. And you get 20% off your order, plus free shipping and the 100% satisfaction guarantee for the best and softest underwear that you will ever own. Again, 20% off your first pair, free shipping, and the 100% satisfaction guarantee. It's MeUndies.com, M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S.com slash J-K-P for Jonah Carey Podcast. It's a limited time offer, so what the heck are you waiting for? MeUndies.com slash J-K-P right now. Fix up that underwear drawer. Make the best decision you can, and you'll be happy. The number one basketball factory in America is the Mavericks. Just go down the road to Howard. Markel Fultz goes to Howard. Yeah, and then comes right on all these guys. And gets a year or two in, and then goes goes to the NBA. And a great education if he wants it, by the way. Oh, Howard! Monster education. Yeah. Monster education. Yeah. And if if you have a collection, say, of NIAC or SWAC schools that are suddenly getting these guys, yeah. Then the quality of ball there. Oh, wow. I mean, they could go cut TV deals. Georgetown versus Howard and Maryland versus Howard. Well, Maryland and Georgetown may not want a piece of Howard. No, they did hose. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like playing uh, Butler when they were coming up for Gonzaga. Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, it could be, it could be fun. I mean, just something to shake it up because the, um, you know, every time you think there's going to be a labor action or some sort of organization. Yeah. Everybody pulls their punch right at the moment that you're going to walk out for the Final Four, and who can blame them? But then people graduate or go pro early, and there's an entirely new labor pool that needs to be radicalized and encouraged to take some action, and and then they lose their and So that yeah. cycle repeats itself. So how do you kind of break that? And this is a very provocative. <laughs> so... Uh, Audacity Hoop is terrific, by the way, and Pete Souza is no, almost maybe number one on my head. Barry Bonds and Pete Souza are two people that I want on the podcast, right? Very different reasons, uh, but the illustrations or the pictures are fantastic, uh, and, and the ideas are fantastic. And I'm wondering if, you know, we talked about LeBron and the modern generation of basketball players being socially conscious. Was that your way into this thing? Did you say there's something globally happening with basketball that makes this worth talking about on a on a level above basketball, or was it specifically an Obama idea? It's, oh, this guy's interesting. Oh, he's a basketball guy. Let me see what I can find. It was the latter. It was much more the Obama being a basketball guy okay. that got me into it. And I did a story shortly after he was elected in 08, before the inauguration, did a piece for SI about the role the game had played in his life. And I just said to myself, I wonder what will happen once he's in office. Is he going to continue to have this relationship with the game? Yeah. It might be worth... Just notes. Did he give you access at that point or no? No, and okay. but but what did happen was okay. He had everybody into the White House after yeah, he yeah. won anything, but then he would name drop NBA players when he'd go overseas, and uh, he enlisted some people to help get the health bill uh, passed. Yeah, and and then you'd see this kind of back and forth between the Kobe's and the LeBron's and Obama, and a lot of that was very much tied in. Issues, you know, not just healthcare, yeah. 
but all sorts of things. And Obama would send a little Valentine's to them, like, uh, you know, not since Ali and Kareem and Bill Russell. Uh-huh. We've seen, you know, he wasn't slamming Jordan, but he was definitely lifting the current generation He's up. He's a Bulls guy, too. He's a Bulls <laughs> yeah. guy. Yeah, when Derek Rose... Um, yeah, with the Eric Garner thing. With the Eric Garner yeah. thing, I Can't Breathe t-shirts at the Barclays Center. Absolutely. So there were, there were these things that suddenly... I knew that I could carve a chapter out of the book about the game in this era, this right. politicization of the locker room. And yeah, there's some contrast that could be drawn too between these guys and, and maybe the, uh, the Jerry Maguire generation. Right. The money. Right. Um, so that was a, that was a nice bonus. My interest originally though was, was in him. And also to be fair, Pete Souza's photos started to come out of the White House yeah. and they were so rich and that's, what led to more of a pictorial treatment of it and not just text. Right. It's funny reading about his game, and even when you watch just micro clips, you could sort of tell what his game is. Was it, was it Batty who called it janky or something like yes. that? Yes, yeah, very I good. love that word. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's a lefty, which, you know, I, I, play, I grew up and there are always a couple lefties in our crew, and you're almost janky by definition if you're lefty unless you're hardened. Whatever. Although even Arden, he's kind of he is with his upfakes or whatever. He does have a little bit of an old man game in him. But um, you, I guess, in some ways, you're kind of making the case about you draw parallels between the way that he plays and the way that he seemed to govern. That he was an unselfish guy in some ways, a willing passer, things of that nature. I, I find that interesting. And and first of all, it reflects terribly on me because I was uh, I was Kevin McHale of the black hole. I talk horrible trash. I would actively try to instigate fights. I was terrible. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a nice fellow in real life. Horrible person on the basketball court. So I was especially interested in this idea of, is this a metaphor? Or in your observation, when you see people play a certain way, does that invite real one-to-one comparisons? Yeah, I mean, so much of that characterization of him came from the unanimity of what people who played with him. Right. And watched him play with set. Yeah. Including his brother-in-law, Craig Robinson. Reggie Love. All Reggie guys. Love. Yeah, and just people who played with him in law school. He was kind of conciliatory. And the thing that um, really stuck, struck with me was that he had that knack, and, and you know it if you've played, that, that yeah. ability to play with people who are better than you are. Yes. And that struck me as more than anything um, analogous to being a chief executive. Not just the president, but yeah. if you're any kind of executive. Surround yourself with really smart people. Yeah. You subjugate your ego enough that it doesn't bother you that they might be more knowledgeable than you are. You make that work to your advantage. I'm trying so hard to bite my tongue about the next set of questions that are going to come, but anyway, we're not there yet. We're still at 44. We haven't got to the next number, but yeah. yeah. And uh, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, there's been a review or two that's pointed out that maybe the um, I pushed some analogies a little too far in the book, but the, the invitation to make the comparisons, are there. yeah, you know, that they're. And I've always been a big believer that, um, you know, the way somebody plays, and not just in basketball, but there's something to read about one's character and the way they play their sport. Yeah. You know, Sugar Ray Leonard as a, as a fighter was more surgical than a slugger. You know, he was a little more analytical and came from a, maybe a, a different kind of background than somebody who might be a brawler. Sure. Well, and, and also... His beginnings in the sport are so interesting, and he refers to it in his own book a little bit, that his dad was the one who presented him with the ball. His dad, who was never present, gives him a present, and it's a basketball. So it's it's there's something weighty about the fact that he's going to glom onto this sport, and it's almost like a little bit of resentment. And in the 70s, 
it was totally cool to go up to somebody and say, oh, you're black, you must play basketball. Uh, maybe people do that now too. But there's something about that, and yet that's where he found his peace. That's where he, even going, you know, for much of his uh, time in office too, that that was his place to unwind, that was his place to get away from these issues. The The element of him being this conflicted, I find fascinating because the rest of us don't have to go through it. We just say, oh, yeah, you got, we want to play threes, let's go. To hate what you love is so weird to me. I don't even have a question. I just find that very unusual. Yeah, and he, he I don't think he, he hated what he loved, but I think he was always very aware yeah. that there was a kind of racial stereotype that, that follows the game around. Right. Know? But then his own story is so distinctive. I mean, yeah. You know, he's raised by these two elderly grandparents from Kansas in Hawaii, where even though it's incredibly racially diverse, there are not a lot of black people. Right. So it, you come at the issue from any direction, and it's bizarre. And I think what Obama did when he got to Chicago, he just cast his lot with a lot of people who played ball. You know, Michelle's brother, yep. Arnie Duncan's. This was his social circle. This is these were people who were kind of simpatico with him and what he was interested in, what he believed, and it was the way he kind of made his way. And it had its own momentum. Now, as a fan, yeah. that's a whole separate thing, but he became that too. He became a Bulls fan. And, oh, yeah. Um, and he ended up coaching his daughter uh, and finds Reggie Love to be his personal aide. And I, that those aren't acts of somebody who who was trying to distance himself from the game. It's true. You know, and I, uh, and I understand if I did not get to speak to him, uh, for the book, I tried. Yeah. Um, but I was very grateful that there were, well, A, that Pete Susan in the White House cooperated because they did a picture spot. Follow Pete on Instagram, by the way. My favorite oh. Instagram follow. Phenomenal. Excellent. Yes. Um, but no, the, 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 the way Obama was, um, um, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Well, you're talking about Pete, and you're talking about him in the way of giving you permission with some of the actors, with the photos, right? If and, not with the dialogue. Yes, and and, yeah. and if I had one question to ask him, mm-hmm. get the chance to ask, I would ask him about that dilemma that you know, here's this game that is so kind of racially fraught. Yeah. And does it ever give you pause? Do you ever second guess your passion for it? Um, do you resent on any level that I'm here asking questions about it when, you know, you've written and spoken on the great issues of our day? Or just to ask you about those? And what would it, what, what would come back? Because I'm sure he has thought about it. Um, you know, he, he did a really candid interview with Brian Cumble before the Oriental election mm-hmm. and talked about the game and what it's meant meant to him, and he said something, he said, um, I love the game because there's an improvisation within a discipline that I find very powerful, which which is it, you know, and it's sort of, and this is, my, I promise you no more of these analogies to governing, but it is that freedom and unity that we strive for as a society. We want individual rights to be protected, and individuals yep. to be encouraged to the greatest extent possible to act freely, but we also insist on Discipline and co- cohesion and unity and um, so that, clearly he's been thinking about that. And if you read his 
writings on politics and society, yeah. there's a lot of that freedom and unity and kind of where these political struggles are. Well, and he's the president who actively engaged in a team sport. You know, unfortunately, we just had the uh, instead of the congressional baseball game, but it's not like you see these guys playing baseball five times a week. It's you know, they're some of them are pretty decent, but it's not quite the same thing. This was Obama's thing, and my wife and I, we can't see. We're on a kick now. We're taking our kids to national parks all over the place. Anywhere. Grand Canyon, Alcatraz, but even like, shoot, they were just in Buffalo and they went to the place where McKinley was, either McKinley was assassinated, no, I think it's where, yeah, McKinley was assassinated and then Roosevelt got sworn in there at this big fair or whatever. And we just had this conversation. We started talking about Jerry Ford recently. Jerry Ford was a badass football player. He was really good. But obviously you cannot play football if you are the president and whatever he was in the 60s at that point. So the fact that you're playing a team sport in office is really interesting. And the current president, forget everything else, is an avid golfer. And golf is, that's the rigor. That, that's the move. And it just doesn't invite all kinds of differences with golf. First of all, it's not a democratic thing at all. There's some country club implication. There's some racial implication and not in a good way. Uh, you're not cooperating with anybody else. It's fundamentally individual. By the way, I've played golf. It's fine sport. But it's so completely 180 different than basketball. And I just wonder, are we going to get anybody else who's going to play team sport in our lifetime? It seems like such a, a different kind of thing for all kinds of reasons. And when you make these analogies, you can't help it because he's so, you can't say he's so unique. He is unique because he plays a team sport. Yeah, and he was young enough to still do it. And, yes, and, and true. To be fair, he, he played a lot of golf too. And, he did later on, especially. And, and part of the reason he did is he took a, a nasty elbow to, uh, to his lip and he needed stitches, and that was in his first term. So he's playing a lot up until that happens. And as I understand, the first lady had a cough. But yeah, I mean, his, if he had his druthers, yeah, he would have continued to play. Um, Imagine if he busted his ACL. Imagine what the what the top, what Fox News would have said. Our president's out of commission for a year or whatever because he busted his ass. Fox News found plenty to say. I know, but that would have been wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, you know really I think Kennedy JFK was the the analogy the touch football games and kind of yeah sport. yeah and touch football is a team sport. Oh yeah. And that was the last time we really had. A, he was useful as well. Yeah, with, with a young family in yeah. the White House. Yeah. Um, you know, more than just a Chelsea Clinton or, or a Amy Carter, you know, right. single, single kid in the White House. Right. So, um, yeah, there was a real, real sense of robustness and vitality when he was sworn into office. Yeah, he's making the three pointer on the base. I mean, that impacted people. Oh, this, okay. You know, that's, we can't help it. We're, I mean, for better or for worse, the current guy, a lot of it was this idea Maybe in some circles he's an alpha male. He was an older guy, obviously, but there was something about him that was just he's forceful, he's this, he's that, and, and image and charisma, whatever kind of charisma, seems to count for a lot in elections, even though we talk about it being issues with whatever. It seems like countries reasonably split between okay, I like my governance this way, I like my governance this way. Who do you like better still matters a lot, whether it's hitting a jumper or whether it's taco bowls, I don't know. Yeah, I mean my my favorite little detail from OA is that the two reddest states in the blue mm-hmm. were Indiana and North Carolina. Uh-huh. And and not just <laughs> because he won them, but he campaigned around basketball in both. So yeah. he wins the primary. Should have gone after Kentucky. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that might be a little bridge too far, yeah. But 
But then Indiana, of course, he benefited from being the senator of the neighborhood. So yeah, yep. so Chicago TV penetrates into Indiana deeply. But it still means something there because both of those states flip back. Yes. For the election. But yeah. I, I do think basketball took the edge off of a guy who seemed a little alien, whose name was exotic. Yes. All that stuff when he used this idiom to introduce himself to voters in very intimate ways. You know, he, he scrimmaged with the Carolina Varsity in Chapel Hill and all yeah. these photos go out of him hanging in the air going up against the Carolina Hansbro. <laughs> and he plays three on three in Kokomo, has his tournament. Yeah. Um, actually he plays in it and, and that's the kind of, I mean, they talk about, uh, retail campaigning. And, mm-hmm. and in those two states, that's the ultimate retail is to somehow have the game around it. And, um, I, I don't know who the Democrats run who has that kind of cred in the future if there's anybody with that kind of. I'm going to find out Bernie's like a champion curler or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you can get Wisconsin with that. It could work. Uh, well, I, I just wonder, is that something that we were, I mean, well, let me ask it this way. That's a risky move, I guess, to, to make sports your plank. It can work. It obviously worked in some ways. But if the next person tries to do it, could sports fans come back and say, whoa, 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 I just want my Mike Trout. I want my LeBron. I don't need this. I mean, it's just, even in the last nine years, I feel like the way that the political tides have gone in this country, and maybe it's a recency effect, but it feels like people are too cynical or blocked to accept that if the next guy or or gal comes along, Maya Moore runs for president, I don't know, maybe we wouldn't go for it. Was that something that existed, was specifically 2008, was specifically Obama, or could somebody else who plays baseball, or golf, or tennis, or whatever, connect with people through sport? I think the important thing is that it's authentic. Yeah. And with with Obama, this was completely authentic. Um, whereas I thought Trump, when he said, no, I'm not going to fill out a bracket before the NCAA or ESPN, um, That's also authentic. He I has think no interest that in it. Yep. Yeah, and I, you know, if he had, it would have been, it would have been strained. It, it would have been weird. Now, of course, ESPN probably felt they had to ask him. Yeah. Totally understand that. In fact, they, back in the 2012 campaign, they asked Romney if he wanted to fill out a bracket. And he said, well, that's not really, I, I, I don't really know, know that or follow that. But that's fair. That was authentic yeah. too. They asked. But yeah, I think as long as it's, it comes from a real place, not, not that it's some sort of a position on an issue, but it's just, it's something about the candidate that they're revealing. And in that process where we're trying to get the measure of these people who want this very powerful position, I think it's valuable, again, as long as it's authentic. And David Axelrod told me something really revealing. He said they were, they were very nervous about introducing him as a basketball player because mm. they didn't want to play into racial stuff. Right. So look at the early states, Iowa and New Hampshire, very white states. And Axelrod had had some experience introducing black politicians to prominently white electors. Mm-hmm. And he felt it was important that there be a comfort level with the candidate on, on other things, on the things that were important. Mm-hmm. And it was only kind of deep into the New Hampshire campaign that they started arranging these, not really for publicity, uh, early morning pickup games where firefighters or policemen would come in and play with Obama and his staffers. And it was a way to get some exercise and break up the monotony and make these authentic connections. And I think that's that kind of modesty 
is exactly what's called for in a situation like this. So free advice for anybody who is going to be taking some carrier on the trails. I want to get to briefly also, it came up a couple times with you, was, was writing about the University of Miami and writing about, it's really writing about college athletics and writing about when college athletics go wrong. And uh, my dad bought me an SI subscription in 83, 84, it's like 8, 9 or so. I mean, I, my whole life. I got a Bill James book and I got an SI subscription almost at exactly the same time. And um, and so I could, there are 10,000 stories to go on, but I think that that was something where you made your mark in that way. Have, has the state of college athletics gotten any better since then? Miami was such a was such a place that was so ripe with corruption and it was just, it was just very distasteful and so forth. But aside from the fact that we're dealing with do we pay the players or not, have we made any progress? Do you feel like you helped affect any change with what you wrote? Not really. Um, it's funny, I did the book with Armin Patan yep. back in 89, 90, um, Raw Recruits. And it was a book that Leonard Shapiro, the Washington Post, had done, I think with Ken Denlinger, called Athletes for Sale, that had come out about 12 or 15 years prior to that. Mm-hmm. And then almost the same interval after Armin and I did our book, it was the Dan Wetzel book, Soul Influence, yes. with Don Yeager. And that book, I mean, all three books kind of painted the same picture, but just with some of the details swapped out in terms of, well, the technology to deliver the goods is different, yeah. or this shoe brand is more influential than that shoe brand. Uh-huh. And so I think in a lot of ways, no, it hasn't changed, certainly not to the better, but I, I still believe that the biggest disfiguring factor is, is this flood of money that, yeah. that just in violation of all the laws of economics, has to go to somebody and it's going to conference commissioners, for goodness sake. And yes. It's, it's just revolting. And um, is, has there been any improvement in graduation rates? Well, there's been a little bit of an improvement as a result of the academic progress rate penalties going. Mm-hmm. The fact that UConn got punished. Um, so there, there has been a little bit. And Miles Brand, this guy who had it in with Bob Knight. Yep. In the NCAA for a while, he, he deserves some credit for that. Um, but that's really tinkering around the edges. They still haven't figured out how to, to redirect that money, so it's not going to the pockets of people that, I'm sorry, don't deserve it. No. There's just no way that, I mean, you can make this, these sports run, college sports run on autopilot given the amount of money that's floating in there. And the wrong people are getting a job. So no, um, I, I don't think it's gotten better. And I, I still think it's important that that these stories get done. Yeah. And I know there's, you know, Deadspin has a cottage industry of sure. throwing shade at anybody who, you know, piously decries people breaking the NCAA rules. But even in reporting on that stuff, we're basically saying that the, the model's broken. Yeah. You know. They have a point. It is ridiculous that you can't use a calling card. Whatever. No calling cards anymore. You can't get a car wash for free or you're in violation of everything forever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's important that this gets pointed out periodically just so people are reminded that we have a system that's completely broken and, and it will take some very creative lawyer or some courageous judge or some free thinker. I mean, certainly not the SEA leadership that we witnessed. That's an interesting, keeping everything going. They do. They do. And, uh, 
You know, even the O'Bannon case, yeah. um, just seemed like such a modest, it wasn't, the, the, the decision didn't take us in a, in a bold new direction. Right. It wasn't Kurt Flood. It wasn't Kurt Flood. Yeah. The intentions were genuine, but it just wasn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, and it, it pissed off the NCAA, which I suppose there's some value in that. Right. And that they, they were upset and rejected and deal and all. But it wasn't a game changer. And, and I, that's really what we need now. So at this point, uh, we talked about you and Michael Farber being in a similar situation where you still hang your shingle at Sports Illustrated, but you're free to roam around and do lots of stuff. You've written a heck of a lot of books, which scare me. I've done two solo books. They terrify me. Yet I'm maybe thinking about another one about a totally different subject. Uh, you're busy with the anthology stuff at this moment. That That is a lot of that is curation and research and so forth. Is there something... At this point in your career, where you say, "Yeah, I need three years. Give me three years. I'm going to go jump on this thing." Well, I could do that. That's a great thing now. That's great. I'm, I'm Freedom 60. is great. Yeah, I'm 60 now. I still have some miles on the odometer to go, and no, I do have that freedom. I've turned down a few chances to do books over the years because my day job was really rewarding and really demanding. So no kids don't ever write a book while you're working full time. <laughs> I've done it. It's such a bad idea. But make sure that that when you do write a book, you you really are into it. That yeah. it's something that draws you to your station every day. Yeah. You're passionate about the story you have to tell. And um, yeah, and actually, I've I've got a, an adventure plotted with the family. We're going to relocate to Berlin in August for a year. Cool. We're talking in, can I say what state we're in? We're, we're in Vermont. I'll just say we're in the state of Vermont, and it's lovely and idyllic here and all that. So, yeah. yeah. And, and this is just, um, uh, curious about my family's history and cool. want to see if there's, my dad was a, an immigrant and his father was in exile and curious about whether there might be some story to tell about family saga and, um, going over there with no preconceived ex- expectations. You're a reporter. I'm a reporter. Yeah. And, and just see what there might be there, but no book contract, no nothing, just um, taking a little bit of a mulligan on, on life here, and kids will go to international school, and awesome. my wife's a nurse, and she'll get involved with refugee resettlement, we hope, or something oh, wow. like that. Awesome. So we're, we're very excited, and um, in a way that kind of refreshed the, the mind, but who knows where that will lead, but that's the kind of thing that well, I can tell by your face, you're energized by it. It's, it's, it's really interesting to have different kinds of challenges. This was very different than writing about college athletics or anything. I mean, to be able to have the freedom to know that somebody's going to publish something, here's a way out idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're into that. Not to say that obviously an Obama book has a lot of appeal and that makes sense, but it's still to trust you with that assignment to say, you know what, I'm not a political writer per se, but yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I like your resume. I like the idea. Let's go with it. You're not a genealogy reporter either, but this is a great idea, and you've built up the credibility to be able to do it. Maybe you will. Well, I've, I've always been a little bit restless. Um, huh. You know, the, That's right. Probably the, the craziest thing I ever did was my wife and I started a, a minor league basketball team. Yes, we should talk about that a little bit. And that was... No, tell us the name of the basketball team because it kills me. Vermont Frosties. Yes. Frosties are these things that happen in the wintertime to roadbeds here where they get these huge bumps, crack the pavement. And and that was a function of just being restless and 
the web had just started and there was this need for content and I'm sitting with Marty Blakefield, NBA scouting director, sure. he was complaining about the resurgence of the ADA, this new ADA. Yeah, pre-D-League. So, yeah. Pre-D-League. Yeah. Well, kind of parallel to the D-League, but so much more than the Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, there was a team in Montreal. Um, mm-hmm. The Dragons. Well, it was first called the, uh, oh. uh, the Matrix. Oh, yes, the Montreal Matrix. <laughs> very, it's so 90s. <laughs> and then the owners stopped paying the players, and the players revolted, including when we went up to play them, so we almost didn't have a game. Mm. And then there was new ownership, and then we moved to New Oil. And so, anyway, the, the new ABA had a red, white, and blue ball. But the thing that Marty Blake was complaining about was that anybody could get a franchise. 5000 bucks. Wow. So it was that little detail. <laughs> you me, took the wrong lesson from that discussion. Well, there were many, many uh, bills to pay beyond the 5000 bucks. So that was part of, of the saga of it. But um, it was a, a wonderful experience in retrospect and an absolutely <laughs> deadening experience in the midst of it. And I'm just, why are we doing this? Um, but then we would be reminded every now and then why we were doing it when... You know, the family lost their home in a fire before Christmas, and we could all go down to this little high school in central Vermont and do a fundraiser mm-hmm. to help them move into into new home. And um, we won two ABA titles in our first two seasons and uh, brought all sorts of excitement to this little state. And it was there was plenty to write about. And, yeah. and it, on some occasion of the anniversary of the team, maybe I will sit down and do more than just the 15,000 words I threw up in the SI long form site. Um, it's that kind of restlessness that had me. I, I was supposed to do scorecard for the magazine for a year, and I yep. kind of hit the wall after nine months. I just sometimes a little ADD kicks. Yeah, it's a big slot. I mean, it's like it's a great gig for sure, but you have to you have to want it. Yeah, and and it, it's so intense. I think. Yeah, you know, I just ran out of gas, and um, being able to pick my spots a little bit more here. After having done 36 years, told uh, You're inspiring me. I'm feeling good about this. It's good. Writing is, it goes in ebbs and flows, and when I'm in the middle of baseball season, carrying another 4,000 words, another 4,000 words. It's like, I love it. It's great. It's better than coal mining, but it's just, it's a lot. Well, and the web changes in metabolism so much. Yes. You know, it's just the, the, the insatiability of it, and books in particular are, they, they just cry out for you having a longer timeline to refrain, to digest. For sure. And, um, and that was the irony of the Frosty's experience, because I thought, oh, I'd be kicking out these pithy little, you know, two or three paragraph updates every few days. No, and pithy hell, there's a, the payroll is <laughs> And you were responsible. And, and we were responsible for it. And, and I'm pretty sure you're not an MBA or whatever. I guess not. Yeah, yeah. No, all the mistakes we know. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had our our little rewards, psychic rewards, along the way. But yeah. So it was a, a web content experiment is how it began. Oh. And really the value in it, if there's any value as a journalist, is to tell the whole story. Yeah. Calmly, looking back. You know, Could you do it with as much distance? Could you do it pretty well? Well, I was able to, to do it. The 15,000 words you did, yeah. Yeah, so. 15,000. Yeah, and it was, that covered most of the bases, but I have another 45,000 words in, in a word file. <laughs> maybe when we, we're at the 10th anniversary now, but maybe at the 15th or the 20th, yeah. we'll, 
We'll go get a reunion of all the, all the guys from the team. And one of our great players is now an assistant with the Sixers, John Barnett. Awesome. And our, our head coach, a guy from a little town in central Vermont, Will Voigt, coached the Nigerian national team in the Olympics. Wow. Yeah. Um, he's making his way in profession. So we, we feel very good about the little saplings that happen. That's fantastic. Uh, one last question, which I do at the end of every podcast, and, and you told me that you've listened to a couple episodes, so I know that you're prepared for this is uh, a life tip, a nugget of wisdom. I meet you in a bar, I'm Alex and Jonah, and talking about life, they sit down and say, what's your deal? And tell me your deal. Well, it's, it, this may seem um, a little narrow because it relates to writing, but go with me here. Yeah, please. I'm a good audience anyway. All right. The, the thing that I found the hardest about writing, and I have to relearn with almost every assignment, is that the reader does not care what you left in your notebook. That there is no reason to show off to anybody all all the things that you discover, <laughs> depth and breadth of your reporting, and that all that matters is what is presented to the reader and whether it coheres, that it hits its natural length. And why is it that I have to relearn that lesson over and over again? I don't know, but it's because you're excited. Because yes, we are. I describe, especially when I did the book about the Expos, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but when I did the book about the Expos, my favorite stuff was the stuff that happened before I was born. I didn't know anything about the, the genesis of the team in the 60s. I knew that there was a kooky mayor and whatever. So I'm just like, come, come with me. I want you to show you this thing because I discovered I'm like a dog. I just discovered the bone and I'm going to bring it over. And I think that's so hardwired in us as writers. We're desperate to show people and not everybody cares about every detail. It's the carnival buffer. You know? Yes. And, and yes. It's, it's a vocational thing, um, the way we're wired, but it's, I think it's also kind of a human thing. And, and there's a reason that the phrase TMI yeah. Comes, yeah. Up, comes up in life. Yeah. And I think that's where, where this maybe does become at least somewhat of a life tip that, um, not that the world needs more coy, mysterious people, right. but that Sometimes just the power of anything you have to say can be enhanced. The little economy, um, a little with a gesture or a look or something that's unspoken. And people are grateful for that. They can move on to the to other things that may not have anything to do with you. Alex Wolf just told me to shut the fuck up. That's great. I'm a talker, I'm an extrovert, I'm all that stuff. Uh, this has been great, what a pleasure, and, and we were communicating for months. And I said to you, uh, we were communicating by email, and I said, well, I do them all in person. Where do you live? And I'm like, oh, maybe I live in New York. I'll hang out. I live in da-da-da, Vermont. I'm like, I used to live in New Hampshire. That'd be easy. And I'm now, as soon as I leave this house, going over to my one of my best buddies who's getting married this weekend in Vermont. So I drove nine hours to your house. And this was absolutely delightful, and uh, now I want to go do another podcast with you in Berlin a year from now. So I appreciate this very much. You can, you can find us it's, it's great to having listened to your podcast. It's great to know uh, now that in spite of your theme music, you don't have a mullet. <laughs> um, I can assure everybody out there in Podland can <laughs> picture each other with a mullet. So there are all sorts of benefits to our meeting in person finally. But yeah, let's do it again. I appreciate it. I'm going to tell you one more thing, mostly for the readers, listeners' benefit. But um, So I have a wedding tomorrow, and I have another wedding next weekend. And, and a very good friend, I'm actually like one of the three groomsmen, it's a big deal. And we have walkout music. He says, what's your walkout music when you go down the aisle? Walkout music, as if I'm Mariano Rivera. So I'm thinking about it, and I have a podcast theme. 
it would be the most obnoxious thing in the world to have your own song playing, and also the funniest thing. So what I decided to do, because that song is based on a terrible song called Oh Sherry by Steve Perry from the 80s, is we're going to have Oh Sherry playing while I walk down the aisle. The inside show. I'm very, very, very excited about it. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Thank you, Jonah. My pleasure.